Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. Soren Kierkegaard, now here, this is a guy that, the name you should remember, he was the founder of existentialism. And existentialism essentially holds that existence is the foundation of reality, not essence. See, Thomism is based on the fact that there are universal ideas and essences of things, so you can discern the essence. In uh, Kierkegaard's view, there's no such thing as cowness, there are only cows. Although it's not immediately evident, This perspective undermines the foundation on which to build concepts of objective truth and universal ideas. So these are just a few of the people who influenced the early development of modern thought. They give us enough clues to see the drift away from a world that has regard for faith, for the existence of objective truth, for the communal dimension of life, and for the need of having some recognized authority. It also shows where the thinking was moving, where it was headed towards individualism, scientific empiricism, relativism, skepticism, distrust for all authority, and the rule of reason, wherein emotions, especially as an aspect of religiosity, were treated beneath contempt. The general trend continued after the pontificate of Pius IX, often the development of the tenets of Kierkegaard's existentialism, leading to an unqualified or all-out case for atheism in various systems like nominalism and logical positivism, which in essence hold that we construct our own realities. That's also what Jean-Paul Sartre thought. You know, he said, we create ourselves. Now, one final guy, Martin Heidegger, was, he, he took what was, see, Kierkegaard essentially was Christian. He, his problem was with the church, that we had all these beliefs, but we didn't live them. And uh, what, what Heidegger did was he took what was essentially Christian thought and he turned it into an atheistic system called phenomenology, which is materialistic. In other words, human beings are regarded as nothing more than a natural phenomenon resulting from happenstance. You, know, that you take the sum total of one's personal experiences and that's what makes a man. And there's, not, there's some truth to this, and it's, it's very, his, some of his thought is very good in understanding New Testament psychology. He had three things. He had the Eigenwelt is my own inner world, and that uh, has to interact with a Mitwelt, a world with, with the people I live and associate with and whose values I share and so on. And then this, this Eigenwelt and Mitwelt is in reaction to a mostly hostile Umwelt, the world around us. So like in modern times, this would include the fact that we had the threat of nuclear destruction. And that's what creates us into the people we are. One final example. This has to do with a guy named George Allen White. He was, I learned this in in Marquette in in journalism school. He was a journalist from Emporia, Kansas. And he he was prominent. He practiced editorial writing through much of the first half of the 20th century. In fact, he bought out the paper and that he eventually wrote for. And he got fed up with the biased and contentious press of his day. You know, the press was very bigoted in those times. You know. So the, the, the only, these powerful and bigoted owners of, of newspapers 
were not interested in cultivating informed public opinion. Their only, objection wa their only objective was to press their own point of view. So what White wanted to do was he wanted to turn this uh, one-sided treatment of issues around, so he introduced the idea of there being a gray world. Things are gray, you know. I mean, they're not black and white. And uh, he thought he was doing society a favor. <laughs> Unfortunately, his theory, like so many others, when carried to its logical conclusion, puts truth, if it really does exist, beyond our reach. So why should we bother to search for it? And uh, what, what he overlooked was the fact that the different ways in which people interpret events create the differences in their conclusions. And so it's not a matter of something changing in objective truth or objective reality, but in each person's perception of it. Depending on your perspective, as I said in the first talk, if, a, if an architect looks at a blade of grass, he says, oh, it's V-shaped and it supports a lot of work, even, uh, weight rather, even though it's fragile. And, uh, and somebody else will look at it and he'll say, oh, uh, photosynthesis, you know, uh, this is my goodness, this is something. And then a poet looks at it and says, life coming out of inert ground. Perspective. And this is what uh, White didn't take into account. But uh, it, it really contributes to our fact today that everybody's into subjectivism and you can't really know truth and, you know, you kind of make up your own truths. So if a person wants to understand what happened during the council, which in turn had a lot to do with what happened after the council, you have to understand this background of the development of modern thought. In short, even though truth as such is not relative, how we perceive a truth and or reality as such depends very much on our point of view. So with this as background, let's get on with this searching inquiry into Vatican II. Pope John XXIII, you remember, is the one who convened the council. He did so to reorient the church. We say renew, but reorientation. And they're going back to the real sources of the vitality of the church. They call that a resource one or something in French. You know, you're going to get back to the real, uh, the, the sources of the church's life and energy. He, he wanted to reorient, reorient the church to its proper role, not as the master but as the servant of humanity. Hmm. He wanted the church to participate more effectively in helping to solve the momentous problems then and still facing humanity. He reiterated the thought of Pius XII, who shortly before he died had remarked that, quote, even if it were possible to create new doctrine, there was no possibility or need to do so, for the church's teaching on the Christian faith had already addressed all the major issues. It was simply time, in the professed view of the Pope, to get on with applying the faith. In keeping with that goal and to see that it was done well, John XXIII gave this advice to the council members. He said, use the medicine of mercy rather than the weapons of severity in your deliberations. So that's what he was, see, he was saying, use the medicine of mercy. Don't, don't come in and pound people on the head. Use the medicine of mercy. Although John XXIII started the council, Paul VI was the one who really put it on track. I mentioned that when the council started, there were 987 uh, documents already in preparation, and they threw out all 987 of them. 
And now, when uh, John the Twenty Third died uh, in, in June of, of 1963, and that the first the first session had completed, the second one was to begin in September. And a lot of the uh, the cardinals there were hoping that the new pope would just cancel the whole thing because they were getting a little nervous, you know, after they threw out 987 <laughs> prepared documents. They thought, "Whoa, you know." So, but Paul the Sixth. Here's the thing about him: he uh, had already worked in the Vatican, you know, and so he knew the ways of the Vatican. And uh, the other thing about it was that uh, he knew how to organize things. He was not, you know, he knew how to. Uh, like, you know, what, how would you say this? Uh, not only to organize how the people met and did things like that, but also how you structured the content. He took all of that stuff that was in those, you know, the same topics in the 987 things, and he reduced them to 17. So he knew what was needed in the line of organization and procedure, as well as content. Now, Paul VI also eliminated the requirement of secrecy that had initially been imposed on general sessions. It was supposed to be that they were supposed to be done in secret. This solved one problem, but it led to another. This solved a problem that everybody thought the church was dealing with secrecy and therefore they can't be trusted. Well, the problem was the other one was the problem is that the manner in which the proceedings were reported began to influence the way people looked at what the council was doing. Soon, the very fact that the council had been called was taken as prima facie evidence that there was something wrong with the church. The problem I had to deal with wasn't the world, it was the church. As we've seen, history shows that Vatican II came as the culmination of nearly 100 years of vitality and growth under the leadership of these exceptional popes who brought fresh vision and a new spirit into the church developing a body of teaching that restored respect for Rome and uh, for, as a moral and spiritual force in the world. So what we can say is that the council's agenda, the council's agenda, there was no disconnect between the council and what went on before. The council's agenda followed the themes of the papal encyclicals on social justice, human rights, human dignity, liturgy, scripture, family, economic development, a spirituality based on God's love is revealed in the heart of Christ, concern for all humanity, especially the outcast, the oppressed, and the poor. It was an inquiry into how that teaching was to be applied to the life and death issues then and still facing modern society. That wasn't the impression given by the coverage of the council. So what actually happened? On November 8th, 1963, well into the second session, Joseph Cardinal Frings, F-R-I-N-G-S, Frings, of Germany, openly and harshly criticized the Holy Office, known until 1908 as the Holy Roman and Universal Inquisition. It was later changed the name to Holy Office. You see, it got another change later. So Alfredo Cardinal Ottaviani, the secretary of the Holy Office, made an articulate and impassioned defense to Fring's, incidentally, that guy, another incident, the, the uh, theological uh, advisor for, for Cardinal Fring's, you know who he was? Joseph Ratzinger, yes. <laughs> he was a, but anyhow, this, this exchange is considered by many to be the most dramatic and perhaps the most pivotal moment 
in the workings of the Second Vatican Council. And it really was. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. A dynamic, heroic presence. That's how I would describe the catechists I meet in the missions. These teachers of our faith are a visible, abiding presence of our Lord to those preparing for baptism, to the newly baptized, and to all in the community. At times, mission catechists accept donations of food as their only pay, sharing loaves of bread with the poor as they courageously share Christ, the bread of life. We've all benefited from those who teach the faith. Don't be afraid to say thank you. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family in mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio Presents. Keep in mind that the criticism leveled by Frings against the Holy Office had more to do with how the office was run than with the doctrine it upheld. This is important because there's a big difference between strategic thinking, also called management planning, and operational planning. Management planning has to do with identity and purpose. Operational planning has to do with how do we say, you know, fulfill the identity and purpose. Management planning means we're going to keep our operations consistent with our identity and purpose. Operational planning says we're going to get it done. Now, when you apply this distinction to the church, management planning is plainly about doctrine. Operational planning has to do with how the church is to reach its goals. It's a key distinction. Let me jump ahead, way ahead for a moment, to one of the charges leveled against the Second Vatican Council. There are not a few otherwise Orthodox Catholics who claim that we don't have to follow what the Council says because by its own admission it was pastoral, not doctrinal. You get that? Therefore, the Council does not represent the teaching magisterium because the teaching magisterium plainly has to do with doctrine. (laughs) Well, this objection does show some appreciation for the distinction between strategic thinking and operational planning but it would also limit the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit to purely doctrinal matters, not to the actual work of salvation, which is brought to its fulfillment by the working of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. Pope Paul VI, incidentally, officially declared the work of the council to be a work of the church's teaching magisterium, and therefore the objection doesn't obtain, because he did that in the exercise of his apostolic office. But I mention this only by way of introduction to the problems that surfaced in the aftermath of Cardinal Fring's exchange with Cardinal Ottaviani. Now, first of all, you keep in mind that Catholics were not used to change, right? The, count, the council came not only as a surprise, but as a shock. <laughs> the call for change was too easily taken as equivalent to calling the entire body of faith and morals into question. Not down here, but up there. The the actual purpose of the council, how better to equip the church to proclaim the good news, dropped out of sight. Now, of course, there's a big difference between whether Jesus Christ was the Son of God 
and how you go about getting people to accept the fact that he is. The first has to do with belief, the second with acting on one's belief. When it comes, how we are to, comes to how we are to live our faith, conditions and circumstances can take on enormous change. You've got to keep that in mind. The church did have change throughout its history. In St. Paul's time, for example, here's what he wrote. He said, slaves, be obedient to your masters. What? That's in the Bible. Now, what do we do with that today? Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Can we use that to prove that slavery is acceptable in the eyes of God? No. It didn't mean that in St. Paul's time either. It just meant that from the standpoint of faith, in the context of being a Christian, Slaves had a unique opportunity to witness to the deeper truths of the gospel. It often happened, as a matter of fact, that a Christian slave brought his or her master into the faith, and both were set free. What you have to keep in mind here is not only that changes in living the faith are not only possible, they are inevitable. The other thing to keep in mind is how the church, as church, goes about bringing change to the social and economic order. In St. Paul's time, if the church had insisted on social revolution, it no doubt would have been regarded as a political movement, not a spiritual revolution of monumental proportions, such that it could even take slavery as an evil and turn it into good. You know, this is, we have to understand this, and especially when coming to understand our situation with all this talk about the separation of church and state. It's not the separation of church and state. It's the separation of the powers of church and state. Perspe- you know, your perspective, it, has, it makes a whole big difference. But anyhow, getting back to the problem, the call for change in our time was traumatic. More so because stability and unity had always been seen as essential characteristics of the church. The church didn't change. So the call for change did more than just call into question one or another doctrine of the church. In the popular mind, it began to undermine the foundations on which the church had stood. It's no wonder that many people felt as though the council had pulled a rug out from underneath them. What made the situation worse was that the very search for change seemed to suspend the authority of the church all the while the search was in progress. Now add to this, that's bad enough, but add to this the fact that at the psychological level, a call for change represents a threat to one's identity. That's what happens. And we want to preserve our identity. So this triggers a psychological process that is like or analogous to uh, what happens when a person receives a heart transplant. What happens? The body wants to reject it. It's a, it's a biological phenomenon. The immunological system rejects all foreign substances. It's called uh, homeostasis, means you want to keep things the same. So psychologically, an individual tries to keep his or her sense of identity when it comes under threat by the prospect of change. One's ability to adjust to psychological change varies according to factors similar to those that govern recovery from addictive or dependent behavior. The length and intensity of the condition, the age of the person seeking recovery, the presence of support groups and, all, and so on all make a difference, but change is never easy. Often enough, the defense mechanisms that are triggered when faced with a need for change 
will magnify the attitudes that necessitated change in the first place and impede its acceptance. How does this apply to Vatican II? Well, the laws of human behavior, as I pointed out, I think it was the last thing. One of the, remember I said I held something up and I said, look, I'm going to drop this. If I do what happens, it falls. And I said, everybody, think real hard. Think real hard. Now, are you all thinking real hard? This time it won't fall, okay? This time, oop. <laughs> the laws of human behavior are as rigorous as gravity. The critical self-examination needed to identify the need for change usually brings on a loss of self-esteem and sinks a person into self-doubt. These feelings can lead to disorientation, depression, introversion, and a kind of a paralysis in action. You don't want to do things. You can become a couch potato. As they said these laws apply to individuals and to a homogeneous group like the church. However, when groups contemplate change, especially if the process is prolonged and intense, the critical self-study stirs up suspicion and judgmental attitudes. It can also change collaboration into competition, polarize the membership, and just rob, bleed off any sense of resolve, especially common resolve. So if you take all of this in the context of the conflict in the council that surfaced in that exchange between Cardinals Frings and Ottaviani, you can see why people were probably shocked by this verbal fight with the confidence in their faith shaken just a little bit more. Now here again, there's another thing you've got to understand. Uh, we think that conflict should never happen in a church. You know, conflict makes us nervous. Oh, that conflict. Well, there's two kinds of conflict, you know. There's a good kind of conflict that surfaces the real issues, and there's a pathological kind of conflict which is based more on power struggles or whatever. But if you are familiar with the church history, you'll know that conflict is the story of the church from the very beginning. <laughs> the Council of Jerusalem, at the very founding of the church, dealt with a serious conflict, the resolution of which defined the future of the church, whether you had to observe the Mosaic Law. Now, this, uh, if, if the conflict deals with key issues that define an organization's identity, as was the case in the Council of Jerusalem, then conflict is constructive, as it was in Vatican II, if you really understood what Vatican II was about. If the conflict is more about power than purpose, ah, then it is pathological. If there's one thing that the Second Vatican Council did make clear, is that the universal call to holiness takes place in a full and free compliance to the God-given laws of human behavior. So we shouldn't be scandalized by conflict in the church or expect church leaders to be restrained miraculously from circumventing or ignoring those laws. But by not addressing the shock and dismay of so many people, I think the church left everybody to draw their own conclusions, and that just multiplied the confusion and that followed the council. Now, one final consequence of this Frings Ottaviani exchange is that it cast the council members into a division between liberals and conservatives. Bad news. Even though this division pertained more to what the church was going to do than what, it was, what we believe, it actually diverted attention from the purpose of the council. 
the essential mission of the church to proclaim the good news. You know, Jesus said, uh, you know, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, man or woman. And they, now, as soon as you start talking about liberals and conservatives, you're really, that's not a good idea. I think it was, uh, I don't know what else he said, but uh, Bernardine said, somebody asked him, is he liberal or conservative? He says, well, the best thing to do is call me a Catholic. Because <laughs> that's, and I think if you really wanted to know, you have to be a Christian humanism. I should have brought my office along. Today in the office, we have a reading from St. Irenaeus. Irenaeus was, uh, he, he was in Spain and I think around the 7th century, maybe the 8th. But see, there was a movement to try to develop a, a real sense of Christian humanism. And he was one of the best writers on it. And he wrote also about the rise of Muslimism and what you're going to do about that. Very, very good. But this got circumvented, or it got, I should say, it just got stopped in around the 9th or 10th century when people went off into this real doctrinal thing where everything was doctrine and not this, this cultivating habits of the heart. That's what Christian humanism is. When you really cultivate habits of the heart so that when you see whatever you see, that's what you do, and it's like a culture. It's just inbred. What happened was, when, these, when this big fight started to go on, and you got liberals and conservatives, then that spilled over into church at large, and there was conflict and polarization, and a failure to really focus on the purpose of the council and to inspire and mobilize the laity to take up the mission of the church. But I would say this, even if the church's call for renewal had been understood in the proper manner as a new evangelization, I don't think any significant change would have taken place without some kind of a trial by fire to sort out what was to be done and who was supposed to do it. This is especially true in regard to the uh, mobilization of the laity. Uh, a lot of times what happens in the renewal is they try to make, uh, they clericalize the laity instead of having the laity really do what they're uniquely uh, set up to do, bring Christianity into the world. So, anyhow, even if this, you know, this whole, we have this problem of being reactive to what took place in Vatican II, sooner or later this inner conflict, whether within oneself or within a group, does become pathological. And I think that's what it is today in the church. Clearly, pathological. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.